So I guess I'll begin. Uh, hopefully you can hear me. Uh, as Ajita pointed out, I, uh, I've been doing this now for about, uh, I guess, f almost 52 years, which is remarkable considering how young I am. But um, when I began my Krishna consciousness, um, I was a student in Berkeley in the late 60s. I was involved in all the revolutionary activity and um, I was a so-called intellectual and uh, from California. So um, Prabhupada, the, the founder of the Hare Krishna movement, Prabhupada came to my university, came and spoke on the Berkeley campus and uh, by reading his books I became convinced that he was offering the, uh, the greatest philosophical understanding of everything. And, um, and that also he and his followers were practicing. I was exposed to many different religions. I was certainly not fanatical. I never thought then, and I still don't think now, that there's one true religion and everybody else goes to some really bad place. And uh, so I assumed that God manifests to many people in many different places. But still, uh, I was looking for the most complete, the most comprehensive, and uh, the most enlightening explanation of that one God. So I took it for granted that all the different religions that I'm uh, investigating are all speaking about the same God, but I want to understand that God. So in that sense, I, I really wanted knowledge. I wasn't looking for a new religion. I, I already had one. You know, my parents gave me a religion. It was nice, and I actually experienced God within that religion my parents gave me. So I wasn't looking for a religion. I was looking for knowledge, for a direct experience of God. I wanted to, I wanted enlightenment, to use the uh, romantic word. I wanted to really understand things and realize the truth. I didn't just want to believe in a doctrine. I didn't want to simply accept some dogma or, I, because in those days, you know, people were taking LSD and everything was about consciousness. And so I wanted to be in God consciousness. I wanted to be in a higher state of consciousness, not just to have some amazing experience like suddenly you take LSD and melt into a you know 400 pound purple watermelon or something. So I wasn't just looking for some psychedelic experience or, or just to believe in something. I wanted to experience God. It's just like, it's very much like uh, the way George Harrison expressed it uh, in his song, My Sweet Lord. I really want to see you. I really want to be with you. I really want to know you. I really want to go with you. So I think George Harrison really expressed it very powerfully. That desire not just to have some wild mystic experience or believe in a doctrine or join a committee of people that make you feel wanted and all that. My interests were not psychological or sociological. They wanted to understand God. And um, in a sense, I, I was given this great knowledge, these books, but um, so then another process ultimately or another, um, how should I put it, challenge presented itself to me. 
And in a sense, I mean, Prabhupada wrote to me one time and said, read my books and explain them in your own words. Because Prabhupada understood their cultural differences and language is a, um, very much an expression of culture. Language is, 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 you know, if you, for example, if you speak Italian, when I speak Italian, my hands start moving. So it's just, uh, you know, cosa posso fare? So it's just, if, 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 you know, if you know different languages, then you just, like when I speak French, it's kind of like I become kind of a little French. Or if you're speaking German, or if you're speaking Portuguese or Spanish, and so, because languages are, are, are not just systems of grammar. They're not just systems of grammar, including syntax and semantics and lexicon. But languages are because a certain culture, a certain group of people speak a language and the way they speak it, the expressions they have, reflect the culture they're coming from. So in that sense, languages are not purely neutral uh, tools, but they're actually rich expressions of history and culture and so on. And the same is true of India. And so Prabhupada expressed universal truth, but in a specific historical language. Just like, for example, if you look at, let's say you look at the, at the music of Johann Sebastian Bach or the Beatles, what you find is that in both cases, the music has achieved a type of universal status. Like if you look at great classical music, Beethoven or whatever, I mean, Beethoven absolutely reflects the historical time he was living in. The fact that he wrote his music at the end of the 18th and the first part of the, of the 19th century in Austria, part of the Germanic world, or the fact that Beatles were English, the fact that they really did most of their work in the 60s, from the early 60s to the late 60s, and what they sang about, the way they expressed themselves, uh, is really, it, it's both historically situated but it's also universal. And so Prabhupada is the same. Prabhupada gave universal truth, but inevitably he used a particular language to express it, and that language is both universal and historically specific. And so he used certain examples, he, he certain kinds of arguments, he made certain kinds of assumptions in terms of what the audience would understand. And so Prabhupada, recognizing the specificity, recognizing that he was giving universal knowledge, knowledge that he had personally realized, that he had personally seen Krishna, and yet at the same time inevitably using language which was historically specific, he... That's the price you pay for being a uh, well-known Hare Krishna cult leader. Anyway, so... Um, so Prabhupada, recognizing that, he, uh, he asked me to study his books and explain them in my language, knowing me to be American and, um, and having a certain, you could say, intellectual propensity or whatever. And so the reason I'm mentioning all this is because I think you are all in the same situation.
and in a sense, I mean, it's a, it's a, it, it's, it's a lot of fun and it's not, you know, you can have a great spiritual life. You can achieve great things. You can have an incredibly happy, enlightening life and you can have the best friends you could imagine and you can do great good in the world. All that is possible within Prabhupada's movement. But at the same time, now I have to say something uh, just because I think it's true and I think it's importantly true. Some things are true, but they're very trivial. Like, for example, how many trees am I seeing right now out this window? It's, I mean, there is a truth of it, but it's trivial. It really doesn't make much difference at all in your life. But other things are more important. So if you study humans, I mean, inevitably, when a large number of people join any movement, whether it's religious, political, social, cultural, whatever it is, they bring a certain psychology toward it. They bring certain assumptions to it. And so we can study different psychological types. For example, some people, when they come to the Hare Krishna movement, and which Prabhupada brought, and of course Prabhupada is coming from a specific culture, which was Indian culture in the 20th century. And the way of dressing, even the religious type of dress, not, and of course the secular dress, and uh, certain kinds of food, certain types of architecture, are very much uh, part of the reality of India at a certain point in history. It's not universal necessarily, it's not like universal architecture or architecture from the spiritual world, or dress, like why do we wear kurtas, a certain shirt that devotees wear because that's what Krishna wears. No, it's actually because that's what Indians were wearing. And so, but of course Prabhupada brought it because he was himself. Prabhupada was incredibly authentic. He made extraordinary efforts to facilitate our spiritual life, you know, we as Westerners, and yet he came as himself. He grew up in a certain culture. Now there are some people, inevitably, when they join any religion, they kind of take the whole package as universal and absolute and eternal. So that wearing, let's say, a kurta, a certain kind of shirt, which actually is a Muslim shirt, uh, the word kurta is a Muslim word, that somehow if you want to practice bhakti yoga, you have to wear that shirt, or you have to wear certain robes or you have to cook in certain ways, use certain spices, or you have to uh, make music in certain very specific kinds of ways because that's what bhakti yogis do. And uh, I mean, for a while, I have to admit, I, I believed that, I just never, I never thought about it. It's not so much I thought about it, I studied it, and then I made my decision. No, I never thought about it. It was just like a package deal. Hare Krishna movement, this is what you do. And the people who continue to believe this, they're not bad people, and many of them are really great people, they're, they love God, they're trying their best to help other people. But from the point of view of logic and history, I believe, this is my personal conviction, that most of the people in the Western world, not everyone, but most of the people in the Western world will find it much easier to practice bhakti yoga if we don't pile on them a long list of ethnic requirements, like you basically have to adopt a new ethnicity. You have to, you know, you have to change all these external things. 
And I have written papers in which I have, I think, proved by the normal rules of logic that that's not what Prabhupada taught. Prabhupada consistently taught that I did not come to the Western world to, like, you know, steal your pants or your skirts and just, you know, wrap you up in Indian robes or something. Or I didn't come to the West because everybody has to like the kinds of foods that I like. You know, if we talk about a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet, that's an ethical consideration. That's an ethical consideration, you know, not being cruel toward other creatures. But whether you like, you know, chapatis and samosas or, I don't know, the hummus sandwiches or, you know, whatever, it's like, that's totally irrelevant. It's not that if you love God, you will only eat in Indian restaurants or... Or it's not that if you love God, you will only eat Western. It has it's irrelevant. I mean, there are ethical things, and there are considerations uh, which are not, let's say, strictly ethical, but they involve yoga practice. To give an example, there is a belief, which I have not personally verified, but there's a belief among almost all. Asian spiritual traditions, including Hindus, Buddhists, all different kinds of yogis. It's sort of a pan-Asian belief that certain foods are, um, how should I put it? Certain foods sort of will cognitively interfere with your meditation. It makes it harder to meditate. And among these are onion and garlic. I'm really sorry to have to be the one to tell you this. But... So to what extent, so is this scientific? We know that garlic, for example, has some, has, or has many medicinal applications. We also know that, for example, in the U.S. Air Force, pilots are told not to eat garlic before they fly because it apparent, apparently reduces the reaction time. And so, um, but to me, so, so some things are just ethical. For example, uh, killing innocent creatures because you want to eat them is just, it's just a bad thing to do. At the same time, let's say eating, you know, someone puts a little garlic on their cheese sandwich or something, you know, if you put, if you study your garlic, it's not, it's not so much ethical, it's more considered that, well, if you really want to be efficient in your meditation, this may somehow neurologically hamper you. So that's not so much ethical, it's, so, it's more like, first of all, we, we can fact check that. You know, we can actually study any and garlic and say, is that really true? Is, is that just, was that just a belief in Asia? Or is it actually true? And, and so there's these different categories of things that you learn you have to do. Some of them are obvious. And, and they're obviously bad things. Like for and um, and other things are more neurological. Some things are positive, like if you practice bhakti yoga in a certain way, if you chant japa, if you do kirtan, if you study sacred texts, these things will purify and empower you, and you will become a an advanced bhakti yoga. You will realize higher states of consciousness. You will realize yourself as an eternal soul, 
and you'll have a great life. And then when this life is finished, with your eyes wide open, you will ascend to a spiritual realm. Now these are things that I'm personally experiencing in my own life. Otherwise, why would I be doing this? I mean, it's not like I'm getting rich by doing this. And uh, so I'm doing this personally because I have proved, certainly to myself, beyond rational doubt that these things are true. That Krishna really exists, that the Bhagavad Gita really is the teachings of Krishna, that I can have the best possible life in every sense by practicing bhakti yoga. So, because those things have been proved to me, I cannot rationally not practice bhakti yoga. If I don't believe in Krishna, if I don't accept Krishna, if I don't practice bhakti yoga, I am being fanatical or irrational because I have evidence that these things are true. And this evidence comes in the most powerful way as to quote Aristotle, who was one of the earlier members of the Hare Krishna movement. He didn't know he was in the Hare Krishna movement, but anyway. So Aristotle, Aristotle, who's a father of modern logic, part of the intellectual patriarchy, he pointed out that no matter what you claim is true, someone can say, prove it. Like if you say water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. Isn't that amazing? I'm an American, but I understand Celsius. Anyway, so water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. So someone can say, I don't believe that. Prove it. So you put water in You've heard this a million times. So you can put water in a pot and you boil it, boils at 100 degrees Celsius. But then someone can say, I don't believe that's real water, but that's pure water. Maybe you added some chemical to the water to change the boiling temperature. So then you have to test the water or you have to test the mercury in the thermometer. And someone can say, well, I don't believe those are real water testing chemicals. And so you can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. Aristotle says the way you break out of this is that you have to claim sincerely that you know something that is self-evident. It proves itself to you. And therefore, you don't require extrinsic evidence. Now, that's the basis of science, empirical science. Because science makes one big assumption that they cannot prove. And the assumption of science is that there's a real world outside your mind. You can't prove that. So Descartes, le philosophe, le philosophe français, Descartes, he made this point. Descartes made the point that what if there's an evil genius who has placed us in a laboratory and is manipulating our brain so you believe you are in Australia. There's no such thing as Australia. Or you believe you have a human body. You really don't have one. And as we know, even in modern science, I mean, the technology with digital, uh, what do they call that? Uh, 
Oh my God. You know, were they like, like did in movies, you know, the, the movies they make, uh, they can create things that, that you cannot tell are false. You cannot tell the difference that, that they show you like, like a, like someone falling off a mountain or a big explosion. It's all digital, but you can't tell the difference. What if what you think is the real world is just a digital movie? But it's a three, what if it's a three dimensional? You can't prove that. So why do we accept there's a real world? Because somehow or other, our experience of the world convinces us that it really exists outside our mind. And so based on that assumption, which is actually true, I mean, I don't want to drive you crazy here with philosophy, but based on that assumption, you do science. Or for example, you sleep at night, you dream, you wake up, and you conclude, you are convinced, that the world you see awake is more real than the world of your dream. You can't prove that empirically. Because your dream world is no longer available to you to study. So, but some things are so powerful, some experiences are so powerful that they become the foundation of our whole worldview and we live our life accepting those things are true because of the power, the self-evident power of that experience. That's exactly what Krishna consciousness is. If you are a serious practitioner of Krishna consciousness, you will experience God, you will experience your own self as a soul so powerfully that you will see beyond doubt that the way you saw the world in material consciousness was something like a dream and that you are now waking up. So, um, anyway, to wrap this up, and then if you have any questions and, and you have a lot of money, then you can present your questions. That was a joke. That was a joke. I mean, even though I'm an American, I actually do have other values. So, um, so the idea here is that um, in my approach to Krishna consciousness, I have to be true to myself. And I need to understand things in a reasonable way. If someone tells me I have to dress in a certain way, they have to give me a very good reason. And that reason has to be based on real history, not a sort of mythological history that in the spiritual world everyone dresses this way or Vaishnavas devotees have always dressed this way because I know history, I know what the actual Sanskrit texts say. And I know those things aren't necessarily true. So I cannot stop being a rational, inquisitive person. I, in order for me to practice spiritual life, I have to spir practice spiritual life in a way that's true to myself. And so to be true to myself, I have to keep thinking. And I have to keep asking questions, but I find that in all the important issues, the really important things, there are brilliant answers to my questions and that the longer I do this, bhakti yoga, the more powerful is my knowledge 
my certain knowledge that these things are true. I mean, the important things. And there are people who don't need that. There are devotees who accept Krishna and they actually experience Krishna and they don't care that much about history. Like, whatever, you know, I just want to worship Krishna. And that's fine. You know, they're good people. I remember when I was at Harvard, I actually did my doctoral work at, at Harvard. Uh, and um, I attended one lecture in the Divinity School, which really struck me. The uh, speaker was a professor, nice guy. He's a nice guy. And so he, you know, he was a scholar of Christianity. And so he made this point that in the Christian world, all of it, like Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, Coptic in Egypt, like in the Christian world, there are basically two kinds of people. And one group uh, just has faith, they believe in the scriptures, and this is all true, and the priest told me, and that's it. And, you know, that's my religion. The other group also has faith and also is devoted. However, they need to have a rational explanation. They need to know the actual history. Like in the case of Christianity, who actually wrote the New Testament? And who were these people? What was their authority? And, and, and anyway... That's a whole, we could talk about that stuff for years. But in the case of Krishna consciousness, uh, I personally really like to understand things in a historical context. I need for, in order for me to accept knowledge or to accept teaching, a teaching, I have to see how it's reasonable how it's logical, how it works. And if claims are made about, let's say I have to dress a certain way or I have to cook with certain recipes, I need to know, is there really an objective basis for that? Do previous teachers really teach that or do our sacred texts really teach that? I mean, like take food for example. I mean, there are some, for example, Krishna does teach in the Bhagavad Gita that even, let's say, you eat vegetarian or vegan food, there's still different categories. For example, some food is like really hot. I mean, I can't eat that because when I was growing up, uh, you know, we didn't have chili. My mother didn't use chili when she cooked. And some people, they just, you know, there's never too much chili. There's only not enough. And... Um, I can't eat like that. And Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that foods which are very hot and spicy are in the mode of passion. And the mode of passion is sort of the middle quality and not as favorable for spiritual life as, let's say, foods which, are, which kind of make you peaceful instead of making you passionate. And so even in foods, even let's say in vegetarian foods or vegan foods where there's there aren't really ethical issues. It's not ethical, but certain foods make you very passionate or agitated or excited and other foods keep you kind of peaceful. And so 
like if people say you should eat this kind of food because, you know, Krishna likes it or something, and then I'm going to ask, well, what does Krishna really say? Because like in some temples, they'll offer certain kinds of food to Krishna and then say, you, you know, Krishna wants this, but then I look at the food and I check the Bhagavad Gita and it turns out Krishna says, well, that's food and passion, not in goodness. And so that's me. You know, for me, it's really important to kind of, I need to understand things in a reasonable way. I need to make sense of things. And I guess other people who share that character trait tend to like my presentation because they, because they need that. Other people don't need it. And I don't mean to say that I'm better than those people. Some people are just... They don't really have that kind of intellectual curiosity. I know that Krishna is God. I've personally experienced this. I know I should practice bhakti yoga. I don't care about the other stuff. And I think I should dress this way and eat these foods. And they don't really want to get into it. They just think this is what I should do. And they can be very good people. And they can, they can, have, they can be people with real spiritual understanding, let's say in more profound areas of life. But my conviction is, and this is me, full disclosure here, my conviction is that if we are going to really help this planet, because we know the planet's in a mess. I mean, America just became free, apparently, temporarily, from a uh, practically a sociopath that somehow got elected president. And so... Um, I mean, we know the state the world is in. We know how dangerous the world has become. And the world desperately needs spiritual knowledge. So my conviction is that if we are going to successfully convince significant numbers of people, especially in the Western world, to somehow join this amazing spiritual movement to transform the world, then we have to give people that opportunity to be comfortable in their own skin, if that's possible. But to be comfortable, you know, you can be who you are. Let's say you're Italian and you really like Italian food. Actually, I really like Italian food. La fame viene mangiando, isn't that what they say? So, <laughs> so. So if someone, let's say, likes Italian food or Chinese or whatever, we're not trying to get people to eat Indian food. We're not trying to get people to use Indian clothes. We're trying to get people to love God and to understand who God is. So that's our approach. We started a project called Krishna West, uh, which just means to present Prabhupada's mission in a way that facilitates, makes easier uh, the practice of bhakti yoga for Western people. We want to do everything humanly possible to make it easier for people without sacrificing, you know, moving parts that you really need. It's like if you go to your car, let's say you have some kind of chrome thing on the top of your car and just kind of, <laughs> you don't need it, you're bang. So you say, okay, we don't need this big chrome thing. But if you, let's say, there's some important part of the motor and you say, well, I don't need that. And your car is not going to run. So this distinction between essential 
parts of bhakti yoga and things that are not essential is a distinction that comes from Prabhupada and from the great teachers before Prabhupada. So in Krishna West, we are very, very careful not to throw out something that you actually need to make the engine work. But at the same time, if there are other elements which are just ethnic or superficial and they're not really essential parts of bhakti yoga and if those things like certain exotic dress or whatever or other ethnic things if they make it harder for western people to be comfortable in bhakti yoga then we 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 adjust that we keep everything that you really need to become perfect in bhakti yoga and we try to eliminate things that you don't really need and are making it more difficult for you or make you feel a little uncomfortable. So that's my approach. And even philosophy, trying to explain Krishna consciousness in a way that makes sense, that's rational, that's really history-based. And by history-based, I mean even based on the real history of Krishna consciousness, the real history and the history even given in the scriptures. For example, if you say, well, historically devotees dressed a certain way, if you look in the Bhagavatam, the sacred books themselves, you find that's not true. Because I actually did this. I actually researched and I looked up all the descriptions of clothes. What did people actually wear thousands of years ago? What did they wear hundreds of years ago? And I found that there's absolutely no evidence that there's a specific eternal uniform for bhakti yogis. Basically, bhakti yogis adapted to the world they lived in. And so on. So when I say history-based, I don't just mean, okay, real academic history, not something in the scripture. I mean because there's a, there's a lot of periods of history in which our best information actually does come from the scriptures. Just like in the case of Christianity, by far the most comprehensive information we have about the life of Jesus comes from the New Testament. It doesn't mean it's all accurate. It doesn't mean it all really, because there's all kinds of issues there, which I won't go into. But still, for what it's worth, the main source of biographical information on Jesus does come from the New Testament, because no one else wrote any books about him. During his life, he wasn't an important person from the Roman point of view or even from the Israeli point of view. And so therefore, no one wrote a book about him. So that's the, so there are cases historically where a sacred text is the best or the only source of information we have about an ancient tradition. So in any case, using all these resources, I've tried to I'm trying to present Krishna consciousness in a way that's reasonable, that's user-friendly for Western people, and so we can help the world. So as they say in Sanskrit, Tatsarvang Janaha, which means that's all folks. So uh, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to try to answer your questions.
and you know, the questions are really free. I was just kidding. So, if you... <laughs> no questions? Yes, there's a... If you're going to ask a question, if you could possibly come forward, because I may not be able to hear you unless you're near the microphone. You mentioned how, um, for example, the food, I totally agree with you. I agree with you on the fact that um, food, we take Indian food as a very thing and that God is Indian and he only likes Indian food. I totally agree with that. And you also mentioned how um, some foods, like garlic or onions, are not favorable for meditation. So I'm just wondering if you could apply the same thing to the I totally agree on the fact that basket is not dependent on the on bread right. or any external. Uh, but I do have the experience myself that some, some clothes are more conducive to meditation or sit in a class or right. they to worship, they to worship, or going to a church and etc. For example, if you go with a very tight jeans or tight leggings, they don't really, they're not very conducive to sit, listen to Bhagavatam class. Or okay. Good question. Yeah. What's your name, by the way? Sorry? What's your name? Raja. Raja Where are you from? Spain. Spain. España. No me digas, vale. <laughs> okay, it's a good question. And um, here's, okay, here are, the, here are the points. Let's talk about clothes. First of, I would argue, you know, I'm argumentative, but I would give the argument that um, a lot of what you're describing, some of it is psychological and not... Um, I'll give an example. If you study religious communities, for example, we could study Christian monastic communities, we could study Islamic communities, Buddhist communities, all, you know, Jewish Orthodox communities. And so what we find is that, let's say, Orthodox Jews who have a very distinctive form of dress they feel more Jewish when they dress like that. Or uh, Buddhists feel more Buddhist when they dress a certain way. Or Christian, let's say, a Trappist monk or a Franciscan or whatever. You know, they feel more Franciscan and more Catholic when they dress a certain way. And there are certain Hare Krishna devotees that feel more Hare Krishna. <laughs> you know, they dress a certain way. And so what that leads me to conclude, I think there's a, there's a huge amount of social psychology operating here. And I, I don't mean to say you're wrong, I don't mean to say that, that your feeling is foolish or anything like that. But when you join a community, as we know, you know, the principle of satsanga, which means spiritual company association, satsanga. And so we develop faith, we develop devotion 
within a community. And Lord Chaitanya said that in this age we perform Sankirtana. We chant together. And so the fact that you and I are talking right now, you know, it's fun because, you know, I've met an interesting devotee from Spain, now in Australia, and and so you get to, I don't know how interesting it is for you to talk to me, but anyway, so when we're in community, that gives us strength. It, it, it gives us, and in all communities, it could be a political community, a, a, a social activism community. It could be a Buddhist or Jewish or Christian or Muslim community. And so I think that when you're trained in a certain way and you're taught that this is the appropriate dress. For example, let's say I go to an academic conference. Let's say I'm going to speak at an academic conference. And, you know, you kind of have to, so I, I have to actually wear like a collar shirt or something because I, because, you know, there's certain standards or I wear, you know, pants or regular shoes or something. And I kind of, it, it puts me in the mood. It makes me feel like I'm more part of what's going on around me. And so I think we could give hundreds and thousands of examples where if you are in a community that has certain cultural expectations and you associate certain appropriate states of consciousness with certain ways of dressing, then it, it does actually bring you to that state of consciousness. In my own case, and, and if, if that's what works for you, then I respect that. In my case, ever since I, even before I joined the Hare Krishna movement, oh my God, I joined the Hare Krishna movement. Anyway, even before I joined the Hare Krishna movement, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you one, I'll give you an example. When I was 20 years old, I was home for the summer in Los Angeles from Berkeley. And uh, I, anyway, I was doing something and I, I was on Hollywood Boulevard. The only reason I'd go to Hollywood Boulevard is because I had a cousin visiting from Mississippi and she was about, you know, a teenage girl. And so the family said, okay, you have to show her around. So I was showing her, you know, Sunset Boulevard or Sunset or Hollywood Boulevard. And so we ran into a Harinam Sankirtan party. I was not a member of ISKCON. I, I had no idea what ISKCON's philosophy was. I was just, you know, 20 year old from Berkeley that I liked the devotees, I saw them on the streets, thought they were a little rambunctious, you know, the, but, but still I like, I thought this is really spiritual. And so, um, so I said to my cousin, hey, let's do this. And of course she was from Mississippi. I was from California. I could have told her, stand on your head. That's what people do. And she would have done because, you know, I was her California cousin telling her what's totally cool right now. So we were chanting and the devotees were in a line, you know, dancing in a line and chanting. And I was, and then I thought, the thought crossed my mind, should I go stand in the line with them and chant or should I stay here where I am? And in my heart, the answer I got, which maybe, you know, maybe it came from Krishna, I think it came from Krishna, but the answer I got was, it's better I stay here among all these, you know, quote unquote, normal people. It's better I stay here because then other normal people will see that a normal person is chanting. And ultimately, that will probably do more to encourage the other people to chant. And so because my whole life, from the moment I really got into this bhakti yoga, I've always been thinking about how to help other people, 
how to save the planet, how to spread this movement. That's just me. I, I mean, I joined the movement in Berkeley and literally the second day I was at the temple, I organized a guest reception program because I saw they didn't have one. So to me, it's always about making people comfortable, helping people to practice spiritual life. So when I wear these, uh, I don't know, pagan clothes, or when I wear these, uh, you know, non-Indian clothes, it's kind of, it's me, because I feel like now I get a good shot at these people. I'm not gonna, there's not gonna be any type of strangeness factor. I mean, obviously in the world, in Australia, in Spain, in America, there's a certain small group of people who are, you could say, Indophiles. You know, they love Indian culture. They go to Indian restaurants. They, they like Indian music. My, bro my older brother, for example, you know, intelligent, really great person, he married a Brazilian lady, my sister-in-law, and he loves Brazilian music, you know, like samba, and just all the different genres of Brazilian music. I, you know, there, I have many wonderful Brazilian associates. It just never happened for me. You know, the Brazilian music just, it just didn't happen for me. And so, so there are Americans that love samba or Brazilian music. And, but most Americans do not buy that music. If so, so if you, for example, if you just did a study, it's not hard to find the statistics. How many, let's say Australians, how many Australians, let's say how many Americans, of all the music that's sold, of all the music that people download, purchase, what percentage of it is Indian music purchased by people that are not from an Indian background? People are voting with their credit cards. Or, for example, everyone knows about Indian dress. In Australia, in America, there are many people from India. And they've seen the Hare Krishnas for, you know, forever. So everyone knows what Indian clothes are. How many people choose, like, I want to dress that way? I think that's attractive. And so, Okay, I'll just wrap this up, then I'll back to you live, Raja. So, I'll just say one more thing. No minutito. So, uh, so, therefore, I think without question, the overwhelming majority of Western people are more comfortable in, uh, in their own... And I know, because I've, I've explained Krishna West to many, many intelligent Americans who are not members of ISKCON, and they all say the same thing. That's amazing, I love it, it's fantastic. That's what I would want. So, you know, whatever works for you, that's fine. I, I think you're probably a very good devotee. I don't know you that well, but you look like a really good devotee. And if that's what works for you, then I respect that. And I, you know, but I, I'm thinking about how we get a lot more people under the big tent, so to speak. <laughs> yes, Rajan. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm not trying to, uh, to deny the effect of that it has to be like you very adjustable, very westernized. In, in your appearance, uh, because also at the same time, the 79, 80s and everything, we were dressed completely, you know, like outside, yeah. and everything
the importance and the effect of uh, giving back to philosophy to people in a very normal way, like normal. Yeah, yeah. What is normal? Okay. Um, just my question is, do you think it's also we should implement that Western, Christian um, Western dress um, code? Oh, ok, 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 yeah. Gracias por recordarme de eso. There's, an, there's another point, actually, because you said before, and, and I'll, I'll address your questions. You see, we have to compare pomegranates with pomegranates and wallabies with wallabies. So, for, so for example, you said tight pants. If you go to a house of God, whether it's a synagogue, a church, a mosque, you know, if you go to a house of God, you show respect. You don't wear some kind of clothes that sort of accentuate your reproductive organ. I mean, obviously, if you go to a house of God, I, I didn't learn that from ISKCON. I learned that from my mother. You know, if, you, if, if you're going to a house of God, you show respect. And so, for example, in India, prostitutes wear saris, but they wear them a certain way. I mean, that's kind of one of the, I mean, for, it, it's kind of like, inevitably, if you belong to sort of a formal institution, there's going to be a lot of humor available. So, so for example, among some conservative Hindus or Hare Krishnas, a woman can wear a choli. It's that little blouse, which is is probably the preferred dress of belly dancers. And, you know, so you can, like, like a woman can, if you, you can, I mean, some of these cholis, they're like that blouse. They actually, they're not from the spiritual world. They're from Chola, which was an ancient uh, Southeast Indian kingdom. So... You know, you can wear these cholis that are very low in the wrong place and very high in the wrong place. And you can wear a sari, which is very low in the wrong place. And in other words, you can be, a woman can dress very erotically in a sari and choli. As we know, as we, I mean, and some, there are some ladies. Yeah. Yeah, no, but, but there are some ladies, not most, I mean, I'd say most of the women in ISKCON are, are amazing, great souls, but there are some women who definitely, as to use the crude expression, game the system. You know, they kind of like, okay, you have to wear a sari, okay, I wear a chili, but then they just, you know, they're exposing most of their bodies. And even devotees that wear dhotis, I mean, a dhoti, if you sit down the wrong way or a sorry, you can really expose yourself in, in very inappropriate ways. And some, you know, there's... So, at the same time, there are Western clothes. There are Western clothes that are very chaste. For example, the women that wear long skirts. A long skirt is not less chaste than a sorry. And so, and a man, you know, I mean, it's not a question of tight jeans. I mean, you have, to, you have to be a real fool to think that you can go into a sacred place in your most informal clothes. But if, if, if people dress like ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen in Western clothes, then 
it's no less Krishna conscious than Indian clothes. And you see, here's, here's the real point. I believe that we should be teaching people cultural principles, not ethnic details. To wear Indian clothes is an ethnic detail to dress in a chaste way because if you are a lady or a gentleman, you realize that in order to be happy, in order to escape from birth and death, people need to be God conscious. So it is an act of cruelty, it is an act of shameless narcissism to do everything in your power to take people's consciousness away from God and to fix it on your dying body. If you dress in a way that people become sexually interested in you, even if you're not interested in them, I just, I want the admiration. If I'm dressing in a way out of vanity or lust because I want people looking at my body, when I know if they look at my body, they're going to have to take birth again and die again and be degraded. Whereas if I can shift their consciousness to God, they'll have real life. So to me, dressing in a way that's not chaste is simply an act of destructive narcissism. That is a philosophical and psychological principle. Wearing Western clothes, Indian clothes, that is an ethnic detail. And ISKCON teaches ethnic details instead of cultural and philosophical principles, then, you know, what the hell are we doing? So, so that's my approach. The principle of chastity, of decency, yes. That's very important. Wearing Indian clothes, no. American, you don't have to wear Western clothes or Indian. Just be a lady or a gentleman. And, you know, do it in a way that kind of you feel comfortable. Okay, Shajar, they've only got uh, five minutes for Prashad, and she can't talk. Uh, gracias, Braja. <laughs> Hey Ajita, Ajita, I, Ajita, I can't, I can't hear you. If you're talking to me, I can't hear you. Yeah, thank you. Could you could you come a little closer so I can hear you better? Yeah. Thank you. I've been in your program for about three to four months studying Christian consciousness, making if this could be my spiritual path. Um, I, I really appreciate, appreciate the way that you're trying to make things more inclusive for Westerners to come in and, and, and accept you know, this pathway of God. Um, there seems to be a lot of, for me, a, a lot of text in Christian consciousness, a lot of stories that I've heard, particular things within the Bhagavatam. And lots of the story of India. My logical mind sometimes hears these stories about, you know, let's say the battlefield of Churachekra. I, I think there was the story of hundreds, hundreds of millions of people fighting. And then, and, and I hear stories of, of humanity, men and women, being much larger 
Okay, okay, okay. Okay, 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 let, let's let's jump into this stuff. Okay, yeah, first of all, the figure which Prabhupada gives in a Gita purport, 640 million people, I don't know if that was an editing mistake or what, but the actual number given in all the Shastras is much, much smaller. The actual number given in the Mahabharata itself comes out to about, um, I forgot, two or three million. Roughly. I mean, I could look up the numbers. So the 640 million number has no basis in any ancient text. It's just somehow a number that, you know, slipped through the editing process. And then as far as, uh, you, you gave other examples of um, the different Puranas of, yeah. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of things, I mean, how should I put it? The Hare Krishna, I mean, I'll be very honest with you. I'm going to just like really be bold here and treat you like an adult. So, um, <laughs> the sociological reality here is that there are millions of people in the Hare Krishna movement. And most of them are very good, sincere people. Most of them are not scholars. Most of them, many are professional, but they're just not scholars. Very few of them have actually studied what in the academic world is called Indology or Indic studies or, you know, Vedic studies. And there are, there are a lot of urban legends floating around the Hare Krishna movement. There's a lot of things that people hear. There's very little fact checking. I mean, I mean, the good news here is, the good news here is that our basic teachings are absolutely based on uh, sacred texts and even other sources of knowledge. For example, we say that Krishna appeared 5,000 years ago. Technically, it's about 5,100 and something years ago. Now, is that really true, that Krishna appeared so long ago? Well, that number was actually, like, where did that number come from? It's not in the text, because, I mean, obviously ancient Sanskrit texts don't say that in the future, when people switch to the Julian calendar, uh, you know, the Western Julian calendar, the day will come when they will say 5,000 years ago, Krishna appeared. So, so where, obviously, the, so where does this number come from? It actually comes from archaeo-astronomical mathematical analysis. About, uh, I guess around the year seven, let me see, I can tell you exactly when it was. There was a great uh, scientist, mathematician, astronomer in India named uh, Aryabhata, who, let's see, he was born in 476 AD, died in 550. So that is you could say very late antiquity in Europe, maybe the early Middle Ages, very early Middle Ages. So he's one of the inventors of trigonometry. So he wasn't just like a loony preacher on the corner. 
He's, I mean, I mean, in trigonometry, we use words like sine, cosine, and all that. Those are actually translations from Sanskrit words. He was one of the inventors of trigonometry. He was a one of the great astronomers of his time. Uh, there are all kinds of celestial bodies in modern astronomy named after him. So, smart guy. Aryabhata, I say, but because in the ancient world, in ancient India and also other places in the ancient world, uh, people were really into, uh, you could say, astronomy for the purpose of uh, astrology. In fact, Copernicus, one of the reasons that Copernicus did all his research to find out that the Earth goes around the sun is because uh, they needed better astronomy to do better astrology. And there were other reasons also. I mean, the, the, the old world, you know, how did science really get going in the West? What were these people really thinking of? It's, it's, it's much, much deeper and more complex than people know. But any, in any case, um, so, our, so in Sanskrit literatures, it, I would say for great events, like the birth of Krishna in this world. There are all these uh, astronomical descriptions, like this constellation was at this place in the sky, this particular planet was ascendant, and, and so on. So, we've, so what we can do is, we can take all these descriptions, say, of what did the night sky look like when Krishna was born, you know, what, what was the situation with the zodiac, with the constellations. And then we can actually calculate how long ago would the night sky have actually looked like that. Now, someone can say, well, uh, someone who uh, wanted to make a text look older than it was could just calculate, let's say, let's say someone wrote that a thousand years ago but they wanted to convince everyone that Krishna appeared 5,000 years ago, so they gave an astronomical description corresponding to 5,000 years ago. The problem there is that it would have been impossible to do that. Because it turns out that as the zodiac, as the constellations move around in the night sky, there is a phenomenon called precession, which means that they don't go around exactly the amount of time they're supposed to. And so therefore there's a lag time. So over, over the years, uh, calculations, astronomical predictions, like for the equinox, the winter, summer solstice, etc., they became more and more and more inaccurate. No one knew why until they finally, and they didn't discover this precession until many, many, many centuries after these Sanskrit texts were written. So for example, the church sponsored Copernicus, or they, they, they encouraged Copernicus because they, were, they no longer could calculate things like Easter or you know the different Christian holy days because they're supposed to occur like so many days after the full moon or, you know, so many days before or after an equinox or a solstice. And the calculations were becoming really inaccurate and they couldn't tell people when the holy days were. So they needed a new astronomical system. So therefore, because, because of this 
fact of precession, people in a later time, up until very recently, could not have known how to cheat. And Aryabhata studied all these astronomical descriptions in ancient Sanskrit texts, and he concluded that the night sky would have been like that uh, 5,000 years ago, or 5,100 years ago. And even if it was a little off because he didn't know procession, we're not talking about, you know, centuries or millennia off. And so that was his calculation. So based on that, you know, fairly scientific calculation of a great mathematician and astronomer, uh, that number comes. So even the Bhagavatam itself, for example, there are stories in the Bhagavatam which the Bhagavatam says are allegorical. Or, for example, there's a story in the Bhagavatam that says that eclipses occur because there's this really bad guy planet named Rahu, you know, really bad actor, and he chases the sun and the moon and swallows them. When he does that, an eclipse occurs. And so many, many, many centuries ago, you get these great Vaishnav teachers who say in their commentaries, like, that's obviously not what really happens. So... So the, the, uh, the, you know, the original creators of these texts, including Krishna himself, and the, and the commentators, the great teachers, they're not naive, they're not foolish. And they're, they're um, hermeneutic. They're sort of, you know, rational approach to interpreting and understanding sacred texts is actually quite sophisticated. And so, but there are certain things which they unequivocally declare this is itihasa. And itihasa in Sanskrit is a com- it means history. That's how you say history in Sanskrit. And it's actually a combination of three words, itihasa, which literally means thus it really happened. And so I get these descriptions. Krishna appeared in this world. You know, joy to the world, the Lord has come. By the way, the music for that, joy to the world was written by my favorite composer, Handel. Anyway, just, you know, honk if you like Handel. So, so therefore, um, we get these descriptions, and if I only had the descriptions, I might be tempted to say, well, maybe it's some parts are symbolic, or maybe it's this or that. But the fact is, I have very powerful personal experiences, irrefutable experiences, which absolutely confirm that this stuff is real. In fact, just as your awakened state is more real than your dream state, my experiences of Krishna, my experiences of the reality of all this amazing stuff, it's actually a more real perception of the world. It's not like when you realize Krishna, you will no longer believe that Canberra is the capital of Australia or you will no longer believe that eucalyptus trees were brought from Australia to California. I mean, it's not that you deny the laws of, of biology or chemistry. It, it, it's not in that sense that you see things differently. It's that you see the same eucalyptus trees or the same whatever, but you see it in a much more powerful way. You see the universe is multidimensional. You don't deny the empiric dimension. You simply see that it's just the surface of reality. 
So I think I am on very firm epistemic ground here. Thank you, thank you for your question. Oh, they, oh they, they don't want to eat today. I'm just kidding, that was a joke. So, you know, we are, I mean, bhakti yoga is food intensive. I just, I just want to make one remark that um, we're, bhakti yogis, most of them are kind of foodies in their own way. But Ajita, I met Ajita. When did I meet you, Ajita? Uh, in yeah, he was a, he was always exceptional. He joined the movement in Brazil, and uh, yeah, he and he, I'm really um, very proud of him and very impressed. He's done outstanding service, and uh, I I think you're all actually fortunate to be able to work with him. So I'll let you eat now. <laughs> maybe, maybe can you give them just a quick minute encouragement in the practice of bhakti yoga, how they can. Practice bhakti yoga. Okay, give them a quick two minutes uh, general encouragement on how they can pursue the bhakti yoga with sincerity, intelligence, and devotion. I would say, to be honest, that if they work with you, and uh, I think that's probably the best thing they can do. There, I gave, I, I gave it to you in 20 seconds. So, thank you all very much. It was a pleasure to see all you guys, and I wish you all a lot of success in your spiritual lives. Hare Krishna. And so, people on Facebook, uh, I apologize that I'm not answering all your questions, but... Um, I don't know how to find them. Let me see if there's... But uh, thank you for watching on Facebook and uh, hope I'll see you guys soon. Hare Krishna.